Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Here, we'll be exploring the people side of successful businesses, careers, and lives. We all have a story to share, and there's something to be learned in every story. Join us to learn from authors, business leaders, thought leaders, and people just like you to uncover the latest ideas, resources, and tools to help you become more effective at work and life. As it turns out, the secret to success is cultivating winning relationships. Business is personal and relationships matter. Well, hello again. My guest today is Dr. Linda Henman, who is the author of numerous books, and she works with executives and boards of Fortune 500 companies and small businesses that are looking to grow and think strategically, dramatically, and promote intelligently. She is known as the decision catalyst. And tell me then, Linda, what does that mean, the decision catalyst? That means I help those in the C-suite make decisions that they can't afford to get wrong. Oh, my goodness. That is okay. So that is it in a nutshell. And I think that underpins uh, the book that we're going to be discussing today, The Merger Mindset, How to Get It Right in the High Stakes World of Mergers, Acquisitions, and Divestitures. So what was the inspiration behind writing The Merger Mindset? Actually, the inspiration came from a colleague who approached uh, Constance Derrickson me at a conference and said, you two are doing mergers and acquisition works and not too, too many other consultants are doing this kind of work. You should write a book together. So Constance and I were talking about breaking up of large companies and the working title for a while was breaking up is hard to do. Constance is quite a good singer. So she kept giving the background music to our meetings and singing Neil Sedaka's breaking up is hard to do. And then we realized partway through that wasn't the right title for the book, that we were really talking about the psychology of what needs to happen between the two ears of the decision makers when they go into a high stakes deal like an acquisition. So we came at it, we came at it from how can we help buyers? How can we help them think about what has to happen in order to do this? Lots of books written on the technology, the integration of HR systems, the integration of financial systems. Most of the books that you pick up on mergers and acquisitions will talk about those things. But Constance and I realized that very few books about M&A deals have been written by women, and none of them has been written by a psychologist. So we teamed up a clinical psychologist and an organizational psychologist and said, this is what we want to do. I love it. So I don't know, you probably won't be aware, but I spent 15 years in commercial finance as my first career. And one of the reasons I've pivoted into leadership development was that there was so much focus on the numbers and the transaction, but very little on the human side of making those businesses successful. And that's what I love to do. And it sounds like that that's what you're saying is that checklists aren't going to cut it. Um, that you have to think about, to your point, the psychology and the how and the emotion behind bringing organizations together. 
That's right. And what we discovered in our work together is that it's the mindset. It's not just how you think about things. Now, these checklists are important. You cannot mm -hmm. integrate two companies without the right technology approach, mm -hmm. without, without the right numbers approach and figuring out how the other makes money. But when we stood back and looked at the statistics, and that is 75 to 90 percent of M&A deals either fail or they fail to deliver on the deal thesis. We said it's what's happening here. It's what ha is happening in the minds of the decision makers. And, and emotion is certainly part of that. But we also discovered through our research together, it's also the beliefs and the cognition, the motivation, the, real, the resilience, and the emotion. So those five things comprise the mindset of somebody who has it right, who can get the deal right. So tell me a little bit more about those. So if we go through the five lists, it, it mm -hmm. all starts with the beliefs. What are what are the perceptions, attitudes, and values of the, the buyer and the seller? And when you're bringing these two companies together, you often hear, well, it was because of uh, incompatible cultures. What does that really mean? It means that the decision makers have different beliefs upon which they are basing their decisions. So if you have a company who believes that fast paced and big picture is the way to go, and you try to acquire a company that is very slow paced, methodical, and accurate, you're going to have a culture class because one company, the people in one company are going to be very change oriented. The people in the other company are going to be more cautious and perhaps risk averse. So that goes to the beliefs. Then the cognition. And this one is, I have to say, uh, the, the lack of high caliber cognition is probably the culprit for many failed deals. And that is people just don't think about the deals correctly, that they don't have advanced analytical reasoning skills. And so my job in many of these situations is to evaluate the cognitive abilities of the decision makers and for the people who are going to run the combined organization. So are they smart enough? Are they, do they anticipate consequences? Can they think strategically? Can they get solve unfamiliar problems? These are questions that I want answers to when I start evaluating the leadership team for the combined organization. Okay. So that, and then the emotions. I look at, I wanna know about the brains of the person, but I also wanna know about the emotion. What are they afraid of? What drives their decision? Because, one of the things that my mentor, Alan Weiss, tells us is that we think about things, but emotions really make us act. So ideas will make us think, but emotions make us act. And in an M&A deal, if you do not bring the emotions of everybody, the buyer and the seller, and put them on the table and talk about them and realize what they are, they are an undercurrent that is there and they will undermine your your deal if no one is recognizing what they are. So that's the emotion. Mm -hmm. Then the motivation, what drives the people in both organization? Is it a high sense of accomplishment? Is it uh, doing work fast once again? Is it, is it uh, accuracy and precision? 
what are the drivers? What are the motivators of the people who are doing this? And what we discover often is that when we start talking about the strategy of an M&A deal, we find that somebody just wants to get bigger. So that's not good motivation for doing a deal. If you just want to get bigger, you might get bigger and have a bigger company go under than the smaller company. Yeah. And then resilience. <clears throat> How good are you at bouncing back from disappointments? Because there will be a disappointment. You don't know what that is going in, but there will be something that you discover partway through the deal or in the integration process. This is disappointing. How resilient are you? as the decision maker and how resilient are the members of your team? How resent, how resilient are the leaders that you want to acquire and the workforce of the company that you're acquiring? So those are the five elements of a merger mindset. All right. So you talked about beliefs, cognition, emotion, motivation, and resilience. Yes. And I can remember my banking career being told it's not personal. It's just business. And yet when I listen, listen to myself repeat back your list there of beliefs, cognition, emotion, motivation, resilience, it seems to me that it's all about the interpersonal skills. Absolutely. What does that mean? It's, it's not personal, it's business. Businesses are people. They're not some abstract concept that exists in, in a cloud somewhere. It's a, a collection of people is a business. So it is personal. It's always personal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, though, how uh, we're starting to get more comfortable with talking about this, but even the foundations around beliefs or the motivation behind um, why we're bringing our organizations together, there's a lot of ego in there. And certainly in the acquisitions that I've experienced on both sides, there can be um, a, a tone of winners versus losers, that influences conversations and then everything that follows. How do you break those down? Well, ego is is getting a bad rap, but mm -hmm. it's it's almost a bad word. When we talk about ego, we're really talking about uh, some of the elements of the mindset and some of the emotion. So sometimes, for example, I'm thinking of a um, a, a client who whose father had started an electrical company. It was very mm -hmm. successful while his father was alive. And then the son took it over and the son kept growing it. And then he wanted to do an acquisition. And I said to him, David, what is your motive for doing this? Why do you want to do this? And he said, I, this is my father's baby that I have been raising. And it's my job to make it a bigger better company than my father did. So is that ego? Is that uh, his father's influence showing up? Is it guilt? I don't know. It's, but it's what drives him. And he has taken that company and made it very successful. So yes, it's, it's what's inside of us. And maybe we call that ego sometimes. And when certainly an ego out of control will cause somebody to just want to get bigger without thinking it through. But that wasn't the case with my client, David. Mm -hmm. So one of the chapters I know you focus very much is talent is not your greatest asset. And we've talked already that business is built on the relationships and the people within it. So tell me about how we can take those risks out of the people decisions. Who do we keep? Who do we promote? How do we set people up for success in that new environment? 
I didn't say it first, but I have said it recently, is hire for brains everything else you can buy by the pound. That when you are talking about doing an acquisition, you need a workforce that's trained. So you don't necessarily need everybody in their C-suite, but you need their workforce. So you need the experience and the brain power. I work largely in construction. They're constantly, constantly buying Mm-hmm. Uh, other companies. And I will say, what are you getting in terms of the talent? And when they tell me an experienced, devoted, engaged workforce, that is what I want to hear. When they tell me that they're going to get these highly compensated C-suite executives who may or may not have the decision ca- capacity to run a merged organization, then I want to take a closer look because I cannot advise people to go forward with that sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. So you talk there again about decisions and decisions at every junction, not just even the decision to acquire, the decision to come together. What are some of the traps then that you see repeated in these environments? Some of the traps that fall together is the thinking of this is the way we've always done it. And I call it this is the way we've always done it thinking. So you, the acquirer wants to, and I'm thinking of, of a recent acquisition that I helped with, double in size. So if you're going to take a company that makes a billion dollars a year in revenue and you're going to acquire another company, and you say, we're going to apply this, this is the way we've always done it around here thinking, to this new combined $2 billion company, it's not going to work. Your decisions have got to say what makes sense now. And if we weren't already doing this, would we now decide to do it? These are the best strategic questions to ask whether or not you're doing an M&A deal, just in terms of setting strategy. If we weren't already doing this, would we now decide to do it? So for Mm -hmm. example, the company that did the acquiring in this last deal that I helped with is a union company, and they acquired a non-union company in a different part of the, of the country. And so this complicates things from a legal perspective because you don't want to get in trouble with the unions with the decisions that you're making. And so they had to really learn a new way of doing the right thing honoring union contracts, honoring the workforce that they had, and integrating the two companies. So they couldn't do things the way they had already done before. They didn't have that, I'll call it a luxury of that sort of thinking. And it has been one of the success, most successful deals I've ever helped with. It's interesting because it, it makes me think back to the resilience, the, the fifth factor that you talked about and how How do you deal with setbacks? Because new information is going to come to light. Things are not going to go smoothly. When you're working with organizations, how often do they decide, actually, you know what, we're not going to get married after all? I'm sorry, we're not going to what? Get married after all. So new information comes to light and they decide, oh, no, maybe we shouldn't bring our companies together. Does that happen very often or does then stubbornness come through? That, that I am often involved in, sometimes it's when I'm doing strategy work with clients, that they will say, we are thinking about doing an acquisition. And then we go in that direction, then I help them evaluate targets. So then, you know, Constance and I talk about in the book, uh, you set your criteria. What are we looking for? 
And so if we were going to invite somebody to marry us, what would that person look like? And what would that personality of that person be like? And so, you know, we, many of us marry when we're young and sometimes we're not so good at setting the criteria, but companies can't afford to do that. They have got to be very clear about what they want. So for example, if you're a company that, uh, if you're a convenience store and you want to do an acquisition of a company that sells coffee, then your the criteria you set will be different from the criteria you set if we said if you said we want to buy a trucking company or somebody to transport gasoline or some other sort of criteria so that becomes critical who are we really looking for and when constance and i were talking about it we used the metaphor of who will we invite to the prom oh <laughs> I like that. I like that indeed. So what's been most surprising for you in terms of the companies that you work with? What stands out for you as you look back at the deals, successful or unsuccessful? The surprising thing to me is how ill-prepared sellers are. And I think it's it, we're doing we're taping this in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm afraid that many of the small companies, especially those run by baby boomers, are not going to make it. And so they will be for sale after everything, the dust settles in this. And some of the bigger companies that have made good decisions throughout this will have cash. And so M&A deals are, going to, are just going to skyrocket after we get this pandemic figured out. But the biggest surprise that I've seen previously that won't surprise me now, but will still sadden me, is that sellers do not go into these deals with a mindset of what is it going to take to get the most for this company that I have built and treasured. So my encouragement to any of your of your listeners would be if you're thinking of selling, get help. The buyers hire me and people like me. And so often I've gone in these situations just shaking my head thinking I could have helped this seller get ready for this deal if I had been representing them. But like a lawyer, you know, I can't represent both sides in, in any of these kinds of deals. And so I, I that would be a conflict of interest. But uh, I hope that many of these uh, smaller businesses will sell for the highest price they can, can if they find that they have to make this decision after the pandemic. Yeah, it's going to be a sad it's going to be interesting to see how the economy unfolds. And to your point, I think the predictable surprise is going to be those who leave the market, those who get acquired, who do the acquiring, but doing it. I'm just thinking even of selling a house, you stage the house, you make sure that it's in order so that it can be as appealing to as many buyers as possible. And the same goes for your company, but that takes time and effort in order to do it thoughtfully and deliberately so that everybody can then purchase and, and move on in a way that's intended. One of the challenges I know when you, you know you can go through the logistics on paper that we should bring our companies together, we can do the cash transaction, but it's bringing the humans together, the culture piece. How do we go about integrating those to make sure that it feels like we versus my company and your company? Well, first of all, you have to dis discuss and decide what you mean by culture. And it's not just the morale. It's not just the engagement. It's not any of the 
the psychological, there's not just those kinds of psychological things. It's also other kinds of things like how much do we want to change? How quickly do we want to change? How do we make decisions? Are we team oriented? Are we individual oriented? Are we a collection of solo performers or are we truly a team? And the more you talk about that, those things and the more candid people are with one another, the more you can put two companies together. Uh, but I'm thinking of uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car is here in St. Louis. I'm St. Louis based. Mm -hmm. And they have done some magnificent acquisitions. They bought, uh, you know, originally they were competing against Hertz, Hertz and Avis. And Hertz said, well, number one, Avis said, we try harder. Or I'm sorry, Hertz said, we get you out of the airport fast. And Avis said, we try harder. Well, Enterprise came in with a really different culture and their mission was we pick you up. So they created a company based on picking people up who'd had car accidents or who needed a ride to someplace. And um, I've used them, by the way, after I was in a car accident and they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. but they, they then decided that they wanted to get people out of the Air Force faster and that they wanted to appeal to the le leisure travelers. So they bought National and Thrifty. And so... Uh, very successful acquisition because they didn't try to put all elements of the uh, culture together. They let some of the companies operate in the ways that they wanted to, but on the important things, they integrated. So that's the trickiest decision. What do we integrate and what do we leave separate? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the phrase, you know, we'll, we'll take the best of both. And invariably, that just becomes a little messy, especially when it's not clearly articulated. And you used the phrase earlier that we need to have those candid conversations. So how do you ensure at all levels in a, an organization that's coming together that there is that culture of candor and the right conversations are happening? Well, I leave this to the acquirer because they have the more power in these sorts of scenarios. And I'm thinking of another very successful acquisition of, of two like-sized companies that they put together a decision-making team of both. And they started going through one by one about those decisions that reflect the the um, cultures of the two organizations. So small things like one company had gas cards for their employees that they could put their gas every month. The other company did not. So they said, you know, in fairness, how do we integrate this and how do we make this work? And then so they, they grappled with that. And then another interesting thing that this particular company did is they hired retired executives from both companies to come in and say, what is the best thing about the company that you left that you would like to see going forward? I have never heard of that, but it's brilliant. And I'm passing it on to everybody that I work with now of go out into the world. You're still in contact with these people, invite them in and have these discussions and say, what would you hate to see go away that represents in your mind, what the culture is of this organization? I love that. I mean, again, how do how do we avoid declaring success too soon? Because obviously, once we've bought it, we start to integrate it. It's easy to then move on to the next bright, shiny object, the next big decision. So, how do we know when we we have successfully integrated? How and how do we avoid declaring success too soon? Well, the first goal is make money as soon as you can after the deal closes. Mm -hmm. And so the one that I'm just referring to, the very successful one, they made, they were 
they never had a dip and there's often a dip and people say, well, we're just going to plan for this, that, that the revenues are going to go down. We're going to lose some customers and it's all about the customers. So the, if you keep your eye on the customer, which is counterintuitive because when you're doing an acquisition, the tendency is to do this. Mm -hmm. The tendency is to look at our processes, look at our technology, look at everything that we're doing and not what do our customers need from us. And the mantra that I have is your customers should not feel your deal. So whatever you're doing in terms of integrating cultures or systems or processes, make sure your customers never ever get a sense that there's a change going on, that they know they go to the same people to get what they want, that there's never any drop of your sales. So you can declare victory when you start making money after the deals and your customers have not felt the deal. Okay, so make it uh, almost invisible, at least effortless for the end consumer that may be uh, buying from you and your organization. It should be invisible to your customers. All right. So as, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I'm just thinking about two parts, two pieces of advice in terms of for people to take away. So if I'm sitting here thinking about putting my business up for sale, what are the first do's and don'ts that you would recommend for a business owner who's considering their future? Find If you're putting your business up for sale, find the most creative investment banker you can build a relationship with that person and find out about that person's track record for selling companies. Uh, there's a person here in St. Louis that I always recommend for that, uh, a, a man named Kevin Short, and he wrote the book about sell your company for an outrageous price. So find him or find somebody like him to represent your, and mm -hmm. don't skimp. You need help. Your, the buyers who are acquiring your company are going to get help. You need it too. You need help. Okay. And then if I've decided to acquire a company, uh, do's and don'ts, first steps in terms of that integration. Don't make any backdoor deals. The ones that I've seen, and, and I didn't become involved in these deals, but I talked to people at the beginning of them, and they didn't hire me because I said, I want to look at the leadership team because you can't just assume that the acquiring company has the better leaders of the two. And you, uh, if you make that assumption and you make backdoor deals of, well, we'll protect this person, we'll protect that person, everybody's got to reapply for the job at the leadership level. So you're only going to know, you're only going to need one CFO. You're only going to need one VP of HR. Mm -hmm. so who is that person going to be? And this is what uh, John Tyson did when his company bought international beef products, which is the biggest acquisition I've ever helped with. And there's a great article in the Harvard Business Review archives uh, called About Talent in which John Tyson talked about that acquisition. So he said, everybody's applying for new jobs. And that was, that was my job and the job of the other seven other experts mm -hmm. who helped John Tyson with that is to help them to determine who those people were. So when you do an acquisition, you have got to be ready to say, we are going to look at the talent of both companies and we are not going to make these backdoor deals of we'll acquire you. And then we're going to keep this person on, uh, most deals have that sort of thing going on, but it works against you. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, Linda, I know the merger mindset's available at all booksellers, online and in person, if you're allowed out of your home to go purchase. Um, but if somebody wants to get hold of you or learn more about the work that you and your firm do, where can they get a hold of you? Well, they can certainly visit my website, and I have lots of uh, articles on there about mergers and acquisitions and other leaderships and decision-making kinds of things. And that is uh, Henman Performance Group, H-E-N-M-A-N, performancegroup.com. Or they can simply pick up the phone and call me at 636-537-3774, and I'd be happy to talk to them live. Oh, I love that. Old fashioned with the phone. I hope it rings off the hook, as we used well, to say. I appreciate that. Well, as they say, from your lips to God's ears, Morgan. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Thank you, Linda. Well, Linda, I've appreciated our conversation. Thank you very much. And I look forward to meeting in person when we're all allowed out to play again. And I look forward to that, too, as well. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything, before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today, and remember, Business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.